Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monaco 24 with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. It's a special episode with the best interviews from 2022. From Alba Voyage to photographer Stephen Klein. I think my intention always is to provoke people to look at a picture and ask questions about the pictures and ask questions about themselves and to make them think about something. All that and much more in the next hour here on The Curator with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start with a highlight from Monaco on culture. In 80s New York, two notorious members of the city's art scene have just met. Andy Warhol and Jean-Michel Basquiat became close friends and collaborators as they plan to hold a joint exhibition, which promises to be the greatest in the history of modern art. The collaboration, a new play at London's Young Vic Theatre, tells the story. We spoke to the writer Anthony McCartan, director Kwame Kwai Arma, and stars Jeremy Pope and Paul Bettany. I was uh, a really big fan of both Basquiat and Warhol. Basquiat, actually, for a brief while, went to the same school as my kids go to, and I have a fascination with him and a fascination with Warhol, and actually I had seen the, the collaboration mounted at the Whitney yeah. A couple of years before I got a call about this and I got the call about this and although I was fascinated, I kind of said to Dennis, the producer, no, because I couldn't quite see a way to get out from underneath the wig and the glasses and the, yeah. <laughs> and the sort of carefully crafted public persona. And then two things happened. I read the script and it felt like a revelation to me. And it's not a bad piece of kit. It's really not a bad piece of kit. And and then I read Warhol's diaries, which he didn't write. He downloaded to every morning to his office just on a phone call. And it written in these long, circuitous sentences. So you have to then presume that there was a different Andy that was hidden. And that's why this script felt like a revelation. And then getting into rehearsals, I haven't... There's a sort of meta thing going on that Andy hasn't painted in 25 years. And I haven't been on stage for 25 years. <laughs> and getting into rehearsal on a play with this group of actors and with this director and with this writer, it has been really therapeutic, actually, and, and quite an extraordinary process. And I totally fell in love with Jeremy. He's the hardest working actor that I've ever met. I, and we're both really fastidious. I think it, it probably comes from his background in dance and singing and the, the realization that it takes miles. It's hard yards. It's a lot of effort to look effortless. And and I just being inspired by his work, which is so luminous. And then my realization, that often when you're making movies, I don't bother going to talk to the director after a, a scene because... Well, they, I know they have it because I, you know, I did it and they caught it and they'll figure it out later. And Kwame sees everything. He sees everything and he talks it. The note sessions are longer than the day's rehearsal. <laughs> but, you can hear a pencil sharpening just now. <laughs> and, and, but he has seen everything. He's got eyes like a hawk and, and it's been an extraordinary process for me. Yeah, because it's essentially a two-hander. There's Bruno Bischofsberger and Maya, who's Jean-Michel's sort of, sort of issue, isn't she, ex-girlfriend. But it's a two-hander, so there's a lot. You guys Although, seem to have a great kind of synergy just sitting here, but that's... 
I think that's true. But although when you, I think when you see it, those two other secondary characters, yes, but I feel like they loom really large in the mm-hmm. lives of these, of these, uh, you know, two of the greatest contemporary artists of all time. And how do you, Kwame? I mean, as Jeremy says, you know, he can he can kind of channel a bit of the Basquiat spirit through looking at the kind of visceral nature of those paintings. But Warhol's work, poor Paul here, you know, he's got, he's got screen prints. And, uh, you know, even back in the 50s, beautiful, beautiful, you know, commercial illustrations of ladies' shoes and things like this, you know, to look at. And that that's an amazing draftsman. But you've got a person that's hiding in plain sight, like Andy Warhol, a person who kind of, at least we were led to believe, wore his heart on his sleeve, Jeremy's character. How do you direct that or do you just allow the script and your guys here to, to get on with it? You know, without making this into a total love fest. Um, <laughs> Come on. Uh, yeah, I mean, like, no, I mean, it's really, um, it's really weird, right? Because one, as an artist, wants to be a bit guarded because, you you know, you, you don't want to put the curse on it and you don't want to, you don't want to attract people going, oh, my God, you know, they've lost their objectivity because they're in love. But actually, I didn't start directing this play until, you know, Jeremy and Paul got on the floor. Mm-hmm. We did a reading in New York. We did a week together. And I had a bunch of feelings, of course. We got to our brilliant set designer, Anna and I had had spoken and we'd set the world. But actually, when we got to New York and we were there for a week and these two brilliant men began to animate these characters, really then I knew that I didn't have a lot of work to do. I simply had to meet them. Right. Now, that sounds like I'm saying I didn't do You sort of have work. to witness them doing it, and it kind of seal, it I, I, actually, seals I'd go, I'd, something. I'd go, I'd go a step further than that. It's not just witnessing. It's I had to meet them. Like, I, I would often say, oh, shit, you've just seen something that I didn't see. It's now on me to meet you. When actors, as, as particular and specific as these two men are, when they come on the floor, you know that they worked four hours last night and two hours in the morning before they put this offering on the table. And then they're saying, okay, what do you think? And I have to be able to meet that with an eye that says, I see you. And if I see you, I now meet you. And so can I offer you something that might allow you to go home tonight and go, okay, I'll do more work. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And literally, it's been that kind of reciprocal relationship that they come in and they go, boom. There was one moment in rehearsal where, it was a, where they had worked on a Sunday. And I'd given a note session on the Friday. As, as it's one of these long said. ones, like a yeah. medieval scroll. Yeah, it's long. It's long. Literally, there was one time where my note session was longer than the fucking, I was going to be longer than the run. And, and I was like, I was just like, yo, no, come on, bro. Pull back on that. Edit, edit just a little. But actually, we did that note session and then, Paul and Jeremy worked on the Sunday night and they came back and they and you could not see my notes. They, they had taken off my notes and they had placed it somewhere in the back garden and said, OK, bam, we've dug this. What do you think? And I remember going home that night just going, OK, I too have to dig that deep. I have to meet them. So that's a very long way round of saying one can come in to a production with lots of thoughts but actually you deal with what is placed in front of you. And when you have actors who are literally just hitting the bat, hitting the ball out of the court every day, it's a beautiful honour to come into that space and try and offer something. It must be wonderful seeing things, how things, even with such a wonderful script, how things change, the sort of subtleties, the the sort of physical subtleties of, of things changing on a stage, right? When people aren't 
dressed as their characters yet, but it's just guys in jeans and T-shirts doing their thing. That must be a wonderful part of being a director, Kwame. I, I think there's a couple of things for, for me. There's a moment, and we did a production of Death of a Salesman a couple of years ago at the YV, and, and I remember coming into the, the final run in the rehearsal room, which incidentally is the same rehearsal room that we're working in right now, and I went, I'd be happy to put an audience in front of this without any other stuff. And I feel that way when I see these gentlemen work. That I go, right now, I'd be happy to just put an audience in front of them. Because they are inventing daily, but they're inventing from a place of truth, not from a place of an exterior, oh, isn't this clever, isn't this funny? But they're just excavating truth. It makes my job both very easy and terribly insecure. We're about, we're, we're about to go into tech. And I'm like, and I've gone, it's the set up to them. Is there, do you know what I mean? Have I, have I thought through the lights well enough? Have I thought through, because, and that's, it's magnificent as a director to, you don't get it every time. And I feel really blessed that Anthony Script and these gentlemen and the rest of our cast on there, it's for me to mess up. I think Kwame's being a little humble here. It, you know, we, 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 we have a great script the cast all love each other and are working well together. Kwame has a very unique way of working um, and builds a real structure beneath the script that allows for play that is very it's 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 really robust and that's absolutely down to Kwame I think he's been slightly disingenuous he's hiding his lights under a massive bushel <laughs> yes, where is it I can't even I can't like, even see I any light under this bushel and they go, Kwame. And they go no <laughs> here's this note they go yeah. no we're going to kick the hell out of that note we're going to show yeah, you yeah, really yeah. what it can be <laughs> and then you literally I go and leave back okay okay <laughs> and for you two I mean this is a collaboration couched in the, as a contest and a contest couched as a collaboration between these two guys. The balance of power shifts constantly between the two of them. You never know who the senior partner is kind of thing. Do you have to make a deal with that? Does that sway between you guys? I guess I should I should address this to someone, Jeremy. Do you know what I mean? Do you, do you, does that pendulum swing between you? It's there in the writing, but you have to be very nimble as a performer to get the yeah. subtleties of that and click into gear and suddenly be a little bit down at what the other guys said. Or, For sure. I know. think the beautiful thing about the amount of time that we've had with this script and the fact that even in the last question you asked, I wanted to just kind of give some love to Anthony and his brilliance and his openness with his script. I've worked with playwrights or writers where it's, this is my script and you say my words and that's what it needs to be. And there's such a freedom in his writing for us as actors and as creators, but just in the process of understanding what is on the page and what is underneath it. So what we've done in Brilliance to Kwame is we took the time to go line by line, intention for intention, and to start to just break down what it is we're saying and why we're saying it. You know, I think having the time and the space to do that just has only influenced the way in which we play on the floor. And I think it also allows us to play it differently each night. So me and Paul, we do our work, you know, outside of the rehearsal space, and we just find moments. And some of those moments we don't have to share with Kwame because it's something that we know when we're on the floor. God forbid the notes, Jeremy. God forbid. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and and he'll see it. He'll see the work or he'll see whatever we found, you know, in, in, in our own time. And I just think, like, that is kind of what's so thrilling about this project in particular and what is what is on the page is because we've found the things that aren't there yeah and i think that's what makes it so interesting and makes you know hopefully the audience lean in 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 a different way so it becomes fun because now that we kind of know what we're doing 
we can do it well and we can do it with finesse. And I think that's like the greatest feeling yeah. as an as an artist going into something as we get into tech because I feel like I'm starting to soar a little bit in the text and through the text and above and around the text, you know. And an incredibly fun episode of The Foreign Desk where, you know, it was recorded as if they were live from the Trojan Wars. <laughs> it was quite an interesting report here live from the wreckage of Troy by our correspondent Hannah Lucinda Smith, who saw these barely believable events unfold. Let's have a listen. So the first thing that we really knew about it was we saw crowds and Trojan soldiers moving towards the walls, the defensive walls, which surround this city, and particularly moving towards the main gate. And usually when that happens, it's a sign of some kind of attack. So that was the initial response from people. They thought that we were again under attack. But then the gates opened and in came this horse. I mean, it's quite unlike anything I've seen. Absolutely huge, made of wood. People were asking, you know, What's it for? Is it some kind of peace offering? Is it some kind of icon? What are we meant to do with it? So this was wheeled through the gates, wheeled right to the centre of the city, people starting to speculate what it was for, and then, of course, we found out. When we describe this thing as a wooden horse, you don't mean wooden horse in any figurative sense. This is literally some sort of carpentry representation of a horse. It looked like a horse. Absolutely. You know, I really can't stress enough exactly how huge it was. Like, this is towering over people. You know, it's something that we only really see in kind of, you know, ceremonies or, you know, as offerings. You know, it's not something that we've seen in Troy really for the past 10 years. We've been living under siege. It's been a pretty kind of hand-to-mouth existence. To suddenly have, you know, this huge icon wheeled in was, you know, really an event. Did anybody at the time pipe up and say is bringing this large vehicle in through the fortified gates of our city, all things considered, really that bright an idea? So I think the overwhelming response, you know, there have been reports over the past few weeks about a possible peace deal with Greece, you know, possible back-channel talks. So, you know, this was the context that this happened in. But there were a couple of people who sort of raised some concerns. One was a priest. He said, no, hang on what's really going on here and he was attacked by a mob who was strangled with a couple of snakes also the king's daughter cassandra also reportedly raised some concerns with her father but clearly not taken seriously cassandra you do have to wonder if that name might catch on as some sort of synonym for doomsaying but we have had varied reports of what then happened so talk us through what occurred after dark, once the horse had been hauled in through the gates of Troy? Yeah, so, I mean, all day people had been coming to take a look, you know, sort of talking, admiring it, saying clearly this is a kind of peace offering that we've got here from the Greeks. And you know, the crowd had kind of thinned out. People had gone home, so just a few witnesses around when, on the underbelly of the horse, a flap opened and soldiers started pouring out. Now, clearly... This is not what anyone expected at that point. There was absolute panic. You know, words started going around. People started waking up. The Trojan army started to try and you know, arrange itself for a fight back. But inside this horse, we think about three dozen soldiers, but clearly the absolute elite of the Greek army, highly trained, ready for their mission, and, of course, have the advantage of surprise. So pretty quickly, they were able to overwhelm those Trojan soldiers around them. What can you tell us about reports that Odysseus himself was among them? 
Yeah, I mean, these are unconfirmed at the moment, but I think it seems fairly likely that he would be among them. Clearly, you know, one of the kind of stars of the Greek army, one of their leading figures. I think it, certainly he would have played a part in this plan, and I think it's almost certain that he is among those soldiers who came into the city on the horse. You put the number of the soldiers in the horse at approximately three dozen. How much damage have they been able to do? The city of Troy is now pretty much completely under their control. I mean, first of all, as I said, you know, the fact that these were clearly elite soldiers, having trained for this moment, very obviously, for a long time, and just having this advantage of surprise. You know, they were able really, really quickly to overwhelm the soldiers around them, to start fanning out, then to go to the gates, open the gates, let other Greek soldiers in. It was a really, really tightly planned operation. And actually this evening, you know, the city is really almost under complete military lockdown. Soldiers are going house to house, trying to search out any remnants of the Trojan army, We're also not sure where the king and his family are. I think it's fairly certain that they would have been high up on the target list as well. There have been reports that the king and his family are all dead. Is that confirmed or not? Yeah, these are reports that are going around Troy as well. But I have to say, you know, it is a state of absolute confusion here. You know, this is a city, as we said at the start, already suffered 10 years under siege. The infrastructure already battered. A lot of people have already left this city in waves over the years as refugees and tonight again a new wave of people just trying anything to get out of the city, trying to find any smuggling routes, any way to get out. So yeah, at the moment it is really hard to confirm these reports but I think it is quite clear, judging by the kind of actions of the Greek soldiers inside the city tonight, that if they don't have the king and his family under arrest at the moment, then that's going to happen very soon. So does this feel kind of climactic to you? Do you think that you might have witnessed at least the beginning of the end of Troy? I would say so. I mean, I think it's pretty difficult to see how the Trojan army might be able to come back from this. I mean, this kind of military operation is so audacious. It's, you know, something that's never seen before and I think something that's probably going to be talked about for hundreds of years to come from now. You are listening to The Curator on Monaco 24 with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. And the Foreign Desk also had a very special guest this year. It's NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg, whose role has unexpectedly been extended for a year in light of current events. Andrew Muller asks Stoltenberg for his thoughts on Russia-Ukraine, China and NATO expansion. Also, fundamentally, I'm noticing the same mood, the enormous will to support Ukraine and to stand by Ukraine and to provide support. That was the message in February when Russia invaded, and that's still the message. And in many ways, that's a good news because I think some were afraid of some kind of fatigue, some kind of reduced willingness from NATO allies, from partners to provide support as the war dragged on. But the reality is that, if anything, it's even stronger now because they have seen the brutality, they have seen the killing of civilians, they have seen all the airstrikes. And of course, also NATO allies have been encouraged by the progress the Ukrainian forces have been able to make. So all of that actually 
is the reason why NATO allies are, if anything, even more motivated to support Ukraine now than they were in February. We're nearly eight months into this conflict now, of course. Is there any part of you that still feels somewhat surprised that Russia actually did this? Because I can remember going back to February, we were speaking to ambassadors, defence ministers, prime ministers, almost up until the moment of the invasion on February 24th, and there was still an amount of disbelief that this was actually going to happen. Did you have a personal moment of realisation where you thought, they're actually going to do this. Of course, until they invaded, we all hoped and worked hard for them to not invade. And there were a lot of diplomatic efforts by NATO and NATO allies. We had meetings here in the NATO headquarters in the in what we call the NATO-Russia Council, a mechanism or a council we have established to talk to Russia. And of course, we really made big efforts to convince Russia not to invade. At the same time, we were not surprised because we had very detailed intelligence. We had precise information about the attack, the types of forces. And we also saw some critical neighbors, not only the armored vehicles and the soldiers and the artillery, but also field hospitals and actually blood, which is uh, very strong indications that an attack is imminent. Then there were actually very little doubt that they were going to attack. So when the attack happened on the 24th of February, we knew it was going to come. And actually, we shared intelligence with the rest of the world back in November 2021, also several months ahead. But of course, until the planes were flying and the battle tanks were rolling and the soldiers were marching, it was possible for President Putin to cancel the attack, to change his plans. But it was clear for a long time that he was going to attack. And uh, regrettably, that was exactly what happened. Well, in those eight months since, have you been personally surprised by how this conflict has unfolded? The question I'm specifically asking is, has NATO spent the last few decades vastly overestimating Russia as a conventional military? Well, the first, we have been preparing for this for eight years, since 2014, because after 2014, we have implemented the biggest reinforcement of our collective defense because of Russia's illegal annexation of Crimea. And the war didn't start in February this year. It started in the spring of 2014 when they took control over parts of Donbass and also illegally annexed Crimea. Then, of course, We've seen a weaker Russian military strength in Ukraine that many people expected. At the same time, I think we should be careful underestimating Russia. They still have a lot of military capacity. They have started to mobilize. And of course, it is just a big country in territory and a big country when it comes to population. And President Putin and the leadership in Moscow is willing to actually accept a lot of suffering and pay a high price for conducting a war against a neighbor. So um, President Putin made a big mistake underestimating the strength of the Ukrainian forces. We should not make a similar mistake and underestimate the potential and enduring strength of the Russian armed forces. That's exactly why it is so important that we provide support to Ukraine and that we are prepared for long haul and that we actually step up also with more advanced systems. I just want to go back to one of your previous answers. You were talking about the mechanism that used to exist at some level, for NATO and Russia to have some sort of contact, some sort of discussion. Does anything like that still exist now? Is there any contact at all between NATO and the Russian military or the Russian government, either at a formal or informal level? 
As we don't have the mechanisms we used to have as a NATO Russia Council and so on, of course we don't meet in that way, we don't have the same kind of political dialogue because Russia walked away from all those diplomatic efforts. Then of course we and our military commanders and also military commanders of key NATO allies know how to reach out to the commanders in Russia to help prevent incidents, miscalculations, incidents. And you have also seen publicly there have been some phone calls from different NATO allies with the Russian leadership. But that doesn't change the main message and the main thing. And that is that what we witness now is a war of aggression. Russia has grabbed or is trying to grab a part of the territory of another country, Ukraine. And of course, as long as they continue with this aggressive war of aggression, then what we need to do is to support Ukraine militarily. Because most wars ends at some stage at the negotiating table. But we know that the strength, what you can achieve around the negotiating table is absolutely linked to the strength on the battlefield. And we need to enable the Ukrainians to regain more territory, to liberate more territory, to stop all the Russian attempts to launch new attacks, because that will put them in the best possible position in eventual negotiations. And we need to enable them to prevail as a sovereign independent nation in Europe. That's our responsibility and that's exactly what we are doing. And for the urbanist, they had a special summer series uncovering the legacies of the biggest names in architecture, city planning and design. This time they focus on the late British-Iraqi architect, artist and designer Zaha Hadid. Why is a curve so appealing to the eye? Whatever the reason, our attraction to twists and bends in the built environment is something that was deeply understood by the subject of today's episode. And the journey to get such amazing undulating structures, such as the London Aquatic Centre and Hong Kong's Innovation Tower, reaches far beyond the world of architecture. For anyone entering the field after Zaha Hadid, including our guy today, the architect Saili Savint, it was impossible not to feel the impact and the legacy of this modern master. If you were a graduate entering into architecture around the year 2015, especially in India, if you said name one male architect, it would be Charles Correa. And if you ask name a female architect, it would be Zaha Hadid. What really inspired me about Zaha Hadid was something related to her philosophy of how she worked, uh, how she was a female architect when it was known as a man's world. As female architect myself and everyone in the industry will be slightly inspired by the fact she was someone who could literally take a sketch and turn it into concrete reality, which doesn't happen in today's world. There is always a developer having opinions on how we should think more in squares and 90 degrees but at that time there was Zahadi who said that you know if there are 360 degrees why keep yourself to just one to get the full 360 degree view of Hadid's life it's important to know where her inspiration came from and how it was nurtured Zahadi was born around 1950 she was born in Baghdad during the time when the government chose to modernize the city's architecture her childhood also saw the completion of very iconic buildings around Baghdad. So taking all this inspiration in, she also had a father who was a wealthy industrialist and a politician who contributed to this progress of these buildings. So we can say that Zaha Hadid was pretty much 
involved in this entire process because she was exposed to this kind of architecture from her birth her mother was an artist so that brings the artistic quality in her at the age of 11 is when she decided that her future was in architecture she commenced her college studies at the american university in beirut in the field of mathematics and then moved to london to study architecture at the architectural association one of the finest schools in architecture and post her graduation she joined oma which is office of metropolitan architecture one of the again iconic firms in architectural industry the foremost influence of zaha hadid was the artist kazimir malvich she was also good friends with a lot of artists like brian clark and lord palumbo peter cook ram kulas elia bernard shumi were some of the people who recognized her talent in a very early age she was also friends with many high profile architects like frank gehry and norman foster so we can see that there was a lot of people who mentored zaha hadid a lot of friends pivotal friends who shaped her entire journey hadid's pursuit of the curved form is no doubt born of these relationships with the artists and contemporaries who became her peers but it also took some time for her groundbreaking designs to actually be realized the first building that managed to spring forth from the drawing board and be set in concrete was a fire station built in a factory complex for the furniture brand Vitra To find out more about this straight line design which began the portfolio of an architect known for drawing curves here's Monocle's Jessica Bridger Everyone wants their first major project to be special In the case of Zaha Hadid Vitra Fire Station was very special indeed and still is First let's talk about something called paper architecture Paper architecture only exists on paper. It's not built and maybe no one cares about it other than architects. Really good paper architecture is actually important to the discipline. One of the things that architects and some other urbanists really like to discuss because it moves ideas forward way before built work does or can. There are more sheets of paper in a ream than there are truly visionary clients or even architects wealthy enough to build. their own the wild the weird and wacky okay so that's paper architecture before vitra fire station was completed in 1993 zaha was known mostly as a paper architect for two decades by the 1990s her powerful drawings and paintings were well known and much admired in the right circles planes riding cascading and folding in space surfaces active exploding the idea of forms so sublime that when people compare her work to sculpture i often think they're missing the point the scale is awesome the vitra fire station is on the campus of the design company vitra in weilheim rhine germany directly on the border with basel switzerland following a horrific fire in the 1980s during which nearly half of vitra's campus burned down in a single night the company sought to rebuild in high style buildings were commissioned from frank gary to da ando and more illustrious architects this started a high architecture cavalcade on the vitra campus that grows even to this day of course one of the buildings had to be a dedicated fire station choosing zaha to build it who had not yet built a single significant structure 
operating at the leading edge of deconstructivist design, was an act of faith that maybe only a design company could make. The long linear building is made from poured-in-place concrete, the formwork visible, and most of the surfaces left raw. It is a building of planes, translated from her drawings. There's collision, tilt, rise and fall, seemingly torquing and twisting while never really bending or curving at all. Some of the planes are walls, some roofs, and rarely is there a boring angle. From above, the building looks like the force of tectonic plates brought to a landscape scale from their elemental crash of powers. The fire station was designed to house fire trucks and service spaces for the firefighters, including a break room and changing area spread over two floors with ample light flooding in. A canopy over the garage opening is a violently jagged shape. It emerges from the building with support from a grouping of thin metal columns. They form a rather undisciplined brigade of structural reinforcement as they actively fight against the idea of 90-degree angles being the only reasonable answer to questions of statics. This is not a reasonable building. However, it is super functional, and while it did not serve as a fire station for long, it served well and does its new duty as an exhibition space admirably. But only Zaha could have built such a thing in the 1990s, convinced even an open client like Vitra to agree, all based on drawings which look, frankly, insane, menacing, and utterly appealing. Her paper architecture would go on as a foundation to build Zaha Hadid Architects into a world-class international firm over the following decades. Vitra Fire Station and the drawings for it still inspire architects and urbanists even today. Bold is bold, and Zaha was irrefutably, insistently Zaha, then, now, and forever. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. You are listening to The Curator. And one of my favorite guests this year was Stephen Klein. I love his photographic work. And he also released a new monograph. This is my chat with him. I think my intention always is to provoke people to look at a picture and ask questions about the pictures and ask questions about themselves and to make them think about something and to provoke ideas in different ways. I think just to show a dress on a page is kind of like you could see that online today when you watch a fashion show. So part of the reason why I did the book is I think a lot of the magazines today aren't doing journalistic and idea stories that have narratives attached to them or bigger ideas. So I thought it was a good time to put the collection of work together in one book. Absolutely. And it's a beautiful, I mean, people have to say it's a heavy book as well. There's a plenty of pages in here. I think it's more the papers, a good yeah. quality paper, so it's heavy, but it's not like a gigantic book. So I think it's heavy, but reasonable to carry. And coated as well. So even some of the pictures, you can feel it. Yeah, what yeah. I wanted to do is I like the idea, especially the one on the cover, to feel more like photographs. And I actually used 
a lot of my original prints. So it's not, it's like through the years of working, I worked with film and then went to digital and a lot of images are produced from film stills. The one on the cover actually is from a film camera, a digital film camera for a project I did called Fetish Heels for the Brooklyn Museum. So that's an actual still. So there's many different formats. And on the paper, it's actually varnished. So it looks like as close to a real photograph as possible. I love that. But Stephen, compared, you know, to photo shoots these days, I mean, in the past, there was much higher budgets as well, right? I mean, how, how do you think it changed? Why this kind of the sense of exuberance a little bit have been lost in a way? Partially, I think, because of social media and the Internet. I think because so many fashion brands are advertising online that magazines no longer have the amount of money that's generated from advertising. So therefore, the budgets have been cut. A lot of staff as well from magazines have been cut. Most of the people that I've worked with in this book have also probably been laid off or somehow not working for the magazines anymore. So I think that has an effect on the budgets. I mean, budgets were always difficult to manage because a lot of my shoots are big productions, but I think even now it's even more difficult than before with photographers' fees, with production expenses and, and overall ideas. People will still want, they're asking me to do the same pictures I did before, but for, you know, 90% less in production value. And that can be, that can it's be. It's difficult. Yeah, it is. And I have something very curious. You have this relationship with stars and, you know, let's talk about Madonna because that's the, I mean, one of the first kind of works that, that you've done that, I, you know, I felt fascinated, still inspires me to this day. I can see a picture and say that's a Stephen Klein picture. But when you're working with someone like Madonna, you know, she's she knows what she's doing. She, she's, you know, she knows exactly her, her imagery, how she wanted to be. How do you put actually your kind of stamp on someone like Madonna, for example? Because um, it feels very Stephen Klein, but also Madonna, you know? I think, well, the first time we worked together, we collaborated, but it was... Uh, basically, she walked into my studio. We had a lot of exchanges and communication about the idea of her doing ecstatic process. But I think after our first shoot, it was very successful. We, She gained a lot of trust from me, and I think that we became good collaborators because without the trust and without the love in anything you do, I think that it's not possible. So the thing is, is that it's interesting because people, when they've walked into my studio and that aren't so connected with her or her image, they'll see a picture of her and not even know it's her. And to me, that's successful because the thing is, I do try to take the celebrity out of celebrities. And I think mm -hmm. even in the book, when I edited the book, there were several pictures, one in particular from Rio, actually, mm -hmm. that was on the cover of W that was actually showing her face full, you know, a full face picture facing the camera. And I showed her the pictures for the book, and a lot of the pictures from the book are from her back. And she actually took that picture out, and she said it was too commercial. So I think she has a, she's a great admirer of great photography and fine art photography, and she appreciates good work. And I think that in that way, she's a great collaborator with me because we both have a love for photography and filmmaking.
And you mentioned the Ryu shoot. For me, that's very iconic because she was playing a character there as well. You know, this kind of, this lady who goes in Rio, it's quite, it feels very decadent, you know. It doesn't necessarily need to be Madonna in a way, but, you know, she was playing, and she was yeah, being an actress there, right? Yeah, it was based on a movie with Jean Moreau. It was based on a role in a film, a French movie that we based that character on in Rio. Stephen, at the beginning of your career, was there a magazine that you started doing your work? How how did you kind of get into the scene? In um, I I actually had my first opportunity to work for Dior Cosmetics because a campaign had been uh, rejected, and I was in Paris, and I got an opportunity to shoot the campaign for Dior Cosmetics, and that's how I began. After that, I started working for Italian Vogue with Franco Sassani, and from there I went to American Vogue and and W and and that's kind of how it rolled out for me. Was it hard at the beginning because I mean I look at your pictures some of them some might say a little bit controversial I mean because sometimes some of those magazines they play very safe but did you push a little bit some think, of those boundaries? Well I think at the beginning I think you have to establish yourself it's like being a writer I think that at the beginning like when anybody begins, I think you service the magazines, and I think you're just trying to get in. It's very difficult to get in at the beginning with any magazine, especially like Italian Vogue. I think the most difficult one was here in England was The Face was the most difficult because I think it was kind of like if you were American, working for The Face was not really a cool thing to have an American at The Face. So that was probably one of the most difficult shoots to be accepted and... and allowed to do what I do at, at that magazine. I think, you know, as time goes on, for instance, with Franker, that the trust through doing pictures over and over and working over several years, that one allows you to start experimenting more, and then they start to see what your strengths are, and they start to encourage you to, to, be, to have more of your own voice. I think it's not easy at the beginning for anybody. I think everybody struggles with everything that they do at the beginning to actually find out who they are as well as an artist. And from the menu, we have a top Danish chef, René Ratzepi, yes, on the reinvention of the Noma restaurant and his new book, Noma 2.0, Vegetable, Forest, Ocean. You know, we were quite uh, successful and Noma was going well, Noma, the first version of it. Uh, but at the same time, with each success that we, that, we, that we found or was given, it seemed like we were getting more and more comfortable and the creativity was becoming more and more difficult for some reason, even though I was telling myself every day, okay, let's go to work and, and play around like we have nothing to lose. It didn't actually feel like that. You know, you were kind of a little bit frozen in your success. And so um, one decision was to simply, let's move, let's go somewhere else and see what's, what starts from that. And that was an incredibly important decision to us because not only did it, did it start uh, the idea of doing these pop-ups, traveling around the world to learn, that came from an ambition to having filled your creative sort of a well uh, for this next new Noma 2.0, we thought to ourselves, let's go travel somewhere so we can learn again. And uh, then besides that, it also uh, made us rethink everything that we have in terms of seasonality. And we decided to make the, or divide the season into 
three distinct moments. Um, in the winter, when everything is frozen, we follow the oceans. Uh, when everything turns green, that's when we go to the plant kingdom and we only serve vegetarian foods. And then when the leaves fall from the trees, we go to the forest. And so a little decision of saying, okay, let's just move one kilometer down the road, which it more or less is, maybe it's a, a kilometer and a half, but it just uh, came with so many extra incredible you know, new thinkings. And so it's been a really good thing for us to do this. And you're telling this story also in your in your new book, Vegetable Forest Ocean, named after those three seasons you talked about. You have yep. indeed divided the year into three distinctive menus at Noma now. Can you tell us more about that? How much extra pressure has that approach given to you? Oh, actually, <laughs> more than uh, we realized at first. At first, it just, you know, it made so much sense and it really does, you know, um, Obviously, the, the the seasons are much more than three seasons. We have a myriad of micro seasons, but still having three moments every year where you have to change a menu in full, change plateware, change sort of the decor of the restaurant to reflect the moment you're in, uh, has proven to be an incredibly creative exercise. That is, I would say, uh, the most challenging thing we've ever done as a creative. Uh, entity we're just always behind but uh in this newfound pressure and newfound focus you could say we've also discovered many more sides to noma and to our own creativity how stressful has it got i'm wondering you know following your approach there must be quite a few surprises you talk about those micro seasons and how things can change quite suddenly what kind of issues have you had what have been some of the stressful moments where you've been wondering what to do when say the weather is awful outside and you can't get those ingredients you initially wanted to yeah that's a constant problem and as a cook you learn to deal with that you know you have this incredible menu going for you and everyone's so happy and you're happy and you might even have a moment of calm and you know thinking to yourself okay this is good and then a storm brews and by the following week, uh, 20% of your ingredients, they're not any more available. Or let's say it's a winter storm and the boat can't go out to fish. And suddenly, you know, you find yourself in a hot mess. So that is just a constant stress factor that we deal with. And honestly, it's it can be very stressful. You wake up and it's like there's snow on the ground everywhere, or it might have been a frost and you think to yourself, how bad was the frost? You know, was it just for an hour? Was it more than minus one? Because you know that by minus two or three, that's when a lot of the herbs will die off if it's a prolonged frost at night. And you wonder, okay, what am I what am I gonna come to work and face? Um, and that's a constant one. That's that's uh, was also the same in the old Noma, but I will say it was a little easier to deal with in the old Noma than what kind of creative solutions have you come up with recently to give us examples of what's been happening recently? Uh, recently, well, as of recently, recently, we've actually been quite good because it's been so mild. The autumn has been truly mild. We haven't really had frost. Uh, it's only now in the, in the last two, three days that it has turned cold. Um, and, you know, for us here in the north, it, it's, it's only five degrees. It's not really cold yet. So we haven't had any uh, great surprises, uh, actually, of this season. 
And if you ask me the last season, I just can't remember because it <laughs> happened so often. You know, there was so much rain and we had this strawberry dish on and there was a, a terrible thunderstorm uh, over the weekend. And when we came to work on Tuesdays, the strawberries, they had just exploded uh, from having drunk so much water. That was an example, you know, and it's, it sounds maybe like nothing. All the strawberries, there's another berry, but it was the same for all the berries. We also had a spring, actually, there was last spring where um, it was wet and it hailed a lot. So we didn't get a lot of stone fruits. Uh, and uh, we had a big plan to make these ferments from stone fruits. And I can't even remember what we did instead, but we always come up with something. I bet you do. T tell me, Rene, what you want to offer with this new book. In the beginning of, of the book, you say that the point is to show what's been going on at Noma 2.0 in a meaningful way. What does that mean? Mm. Well, here it is. You know, this is what's been going on in the last four years. Look at all this work, all this creativity. Look at how we've distilled the seasons onto plates. Uh, look at all the ingredients that uh, actually exist throughout seasons, how much more there is to cook with and to eat, how much more deliciousness there is to eat. And then I'd say for the professional cook, this book is uh, really a treasure trove because the recipes, they are online and they are by far the most in-depth recipes we've ever done. It is basically everything that we've ever worked on. It's in this book and you know, you might have techniques. We never really talk about the techniques that we have, let's say, invented. Uh, but there might be techniques, or there are techniques in the recipes that we've spent years on perfecting. And now they're available on there. And, you know, there's a lot of good stuff. I have to agree on that. It's it's an incredible release, and there's so much inspiration over there. And actually, when you when you scan the QR codes and see the actual recipes, you realize how, how incredibly complicated these recipes are. Tell me about how, you know, it's been a few years since I interviewed you last, and I haven't actually spoken to you since you opened, reopened Noma. Can you tell us about how much things have changed in recent years? Obviously, we have to mention the pandemic as well, but do you think it's somehow changing what people are looking for when they come to your restaurant, what they want to experience? At first, most definitely, uh, without a shadow of doubt, when um, the pandemic first hit, you know, and we opened up, we served burgers because it was clear that people just wanted to be out and together. They weren't interested in sitting, having a tasting menu for four or five hours. Neither was I, by the way. I, uh, you know, I just wanted to be out and feel the energy of people again. And for at least a year, I guess it was more like that. You know, it was uh, people, there was this kindness and people just wanted to be outdoors. I mean, and, and have fun. Uh, we could have served, we could have rolled in a giant pot with goulash every night and people would still have been happy uh, in that period. Um, but now it does feel like it's a little more back to normal. You know, people have uh, sort of gotten back to the routine again and they want to have an experience. You know, they want to come here and be surprised yet again. I feel we're back on that. You are listening indeed 
to the curator. We end on a very good note. Abba Voyage recently opened to the public in London. The concert sees Agneta, Bjorn, Benny and Anifrid perform digitally with a 10-piece band during a residency that is due to run until May 2023. On this special edition of the Monaco Weekly, Georgina Godwin met the world-class creative team behind it. I am Ludwig Andersson and I am one of two producers of ABBA Voyage and we're right now sitting in the ABBA Arena at Pudding Mill Lane in East London. I'm Svana Gisla. I am the other producer of ABBA Voyage. So let's begin at the beginning. How did it begin? Six years ago, an idea was brought to our offices in Stockholm, which means ABBA's offices an idea that it could be possible to recreate human beings in a digital world. Originally, that was it. And usually, ABBA, who's been saying no to things for 40 years, which is part of their way of working, they for once thought, yeah, that sounds pretty interesting. Let's have a look at that. And to make a very long story very short, we did have a look at that, and we continued having a look at it for six years, and here we are. The first couple of years were spent in research and development trying to look at what's out there, what does exist, what technology does exist. And once we realized what technology there was, we started talking about, well, what can we do with that? And should we do anything with that? And once we decided, yes, we want to do something with that, what is that thing? And then we went into full production three years ago, maybe, and started talking and planning and one thing led to another and uh, one tends to forget actually how things happen but all I know is that it's been six years and here we are. And I mean I guess in that six years technology must have continued to improve and advance. Oh yeah technology moves incredibly fast. At some point you've just got to put a stick in the ground and go okay we're going in at this entry point and we're sticking with that. The technology we use is, is, is not new. We didn't invent it. It's motion capture and it's ILM's CGI in, in a way. But it's it's the scale of it that's new. It's it's how we use it that is new. It's the incredible level of perfection that they've achieved with that technology that is quite groundbreaking and that requires a lot of time and a little bit of money and a very, very clear creative vision. It sort of becomes an exercise in restraint in a way when you start off with a blank sheet and, and tell yourself that everything's available to you, then it becomes an exercise in, in breaking down what it is you actually need and leaving the rest behind, if that makes sense. So just describe to me what it is that a member of the audience is actually seeing when we sit here in this extraordinary auditorium. It's simple, really. It's a concert. And anyone coming to this place, I am pretty sure, will experience a concert. Now, it's a concert unlike any other in the sense that, well, one has to start from the beginning. And that was that when we realized that what we wanted to do, we wanted to put ABBA in a concert environment to perform to people in the way we wanted to do it, we realized quite early on that we're going to have to build our own building. Because the amount of technology and the amount of, of light and sound and all those kinds of fixtures that we needed to, to make real the vision that we had could one, not be moved quickly, so this was never going to be a quick touring thing, and two, because of the environment we wanted to create, which is this existence where the line between what's real and what's not gets blurred, where the border between digital and reality is erased, we needed to control the space to such an extent that we had to build our own building. Mm. So 
what you come and see here is a concert, but it's a, it's a super concert. It's a concert, uh, all enveloping, all senses included kind of concert. What are we actually watching? Are they holograms? No, they're not holograms. They are digital people. We haven't invented anything new in that sense. It's motion capture technology, uh, digital characters. But it is the space they are in and the environment they are in where nothing... I mean, it, it, it's, it's hard to... And we've been trying to describe what this is for a long time. You can imagine all the interviews we did leading up to the opening night and, and all the talks we've been having about trying to describe this. The truth is, you, it, it's impossible. One has to come here and, and see this for yourself. Otherwise, you, you won't... I, I can't do it justice by trying to explain what it is you see other than that you are in something that seems to be something wonderful, judging from the audience reactions so far. So sitting here as a member of the audience, what I was seeing was ABBA in their heyday, very clear to me that it couldn't possibly be them, and you were aware that somehow it wasn't quite real, but it was pretty real. What would you add to that? I, I think that's pretty spot on. I think you sit down and you know full well that uh, they're not there. You know, you can tell. but So your brain is telling you they're not there and your eyes are going, well, I beg to differ because I'm looking at them. <laughs> and your brain goes, yeah, but you know they're not there. And your eyes goes, well, I'm, I'm looking at them, so I'm just going to go with that. You hopefully settle in and, and just uh, <laughs> go with the, the emotions that the journey takes you on. And, and we get asked a lot about technology when we get asked about the show because it seems to be what people get fascinated by. But for us, we were never fascinated by the technology. It's a vehicle for something much, much, much more important that was the vision, really, which was not just to have Ab on stage and make them believable and all of that. It was to make the audience feel something. Mm. And... If you don't sit here and feel something, then it doesn't really matter what we've done, we would have failed. I believe in angels, something good in everything I see. I believe in angels. Well, that's all we've got time for this week's edition of The Curator. The show was produced by David Stevens and presented by me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Join us again next week. Thank you for listening.